Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Hugo Humbert is top 10 in ELO. He wins the title in Marseille. Tommy Paul snaps his title drought in Dallas. And Darderi, it is first name Luciano Darderi, uh, slipped my mind there, because he is a first-time title winner on the ATP Tour in just his third event. We're going to get into all three of those things in varying degrees of detail. Uh, I apologize about my voice. I'm still a little bit sick. I fully blame the Waste Management Open. All right. Uh, we are going to start with Marseille. Then we'll go to Dallas, and then we will talk about Cordoba. Umber, uh showing some staying power. We highlighted the consistency in the second half of last year. It was the first time that I've seen him at tour level go week to week to week to week for more than a month and basically win every week on the ATP Tour. First time I've ever seen him do it. Always kind of had the ability to do it, I thought. And uh, that is very much reflected in ELO right now. He is ninth in ELO. Ahead of Runa, Rude, Tsitsipas, Fritz. What does that mean for those uninitiated? ELO has a, a little bit of a built-in recency bias. It is not a 52-week system. So it doesn't matter. Uh, it matters more how well Umber has done in the last several weeks versus how he did 10 months ago. The ranking system doesn't care about that whatsoever. Uh, Elo also doesn't care about tournament size. So, for example, a guy like Kasparud made the Roland Garros final. Elo does not care about that. Uh, Elo only cares about the quality of opponents you beat. So, adjusted through that lens... Umber's top 10 right now. What does it really tell me? Well, yeah, there have been a lot of indoor hardcourt tournaments. If you look at the more recent sample size of the tour in the last three or so months, and Umber, he's been incredible. On indoor hardcourt since the U.S. Open, Umber is on an eight-match winning streak right now. He is 12-2 overall. His losses are to Zverev and Hercotch. Biggest difference for me in his game, in this period of time, is uh, he's not missing as much on the first couple of shots, especially on serve. He is not giving his opponents those error-filled service games that he usually used to. Still aggressive on the plus one, but there's a flexibility there when it comes to his mindset where I find he's doing a much better job of reading the return, knowing when to give himself the green light, knowing when to kind of stop himself and laying off that plus one ball, not attacking it as viciously as he would normally like to, based on the quality of the return. 
And even when he does give himself the green light and he is attacking the plus one ball, uh, I feel there's a, a sensibility now in terms of the target that he's choosing, the speed, the spin. Everything has just been kind of nudged or adjusted towards higher percentage balls. And I think that's gone a long way for Hugo Bear. Also willing to back, back up at times and uh, allow himself to absorb when his opponents are in offensive positions. I did take a, a good example here in this important Love 1 second set game, which is a game that Hugo Bear would get a decisive break that would lead to him winning the second set and winning the match. Great body serve here from Grigor Dimitrov. The return is weak, it's high, it's floating. And Umber is willing to just back up, back up 10 feet. This is not what he wants to do. This isn't really his game. But the fact that he's able to do it now is a big deal because Dimitrov hits this attacking forehand down the line. It's not bad. Umber has given himself time to cover this ball and to hit the on-the-run forehand passing shot cross-court. Umber used to be so stuck to the baseline that he basically gave himself no chance to defend on a ball like that. That's another improvement I feel he's made recently. The big match tendencies continue. It's another thing that I think throughout the last several years of covering Hugo Umber, it's been something that I've talked about, which is against top 10 players, he's really good. Against top 20 players, he's really good. Close to 500 in both categories. Well, those sorts of tendencies, the fact that Umber, when he's really engaged and it's a big match and the stakes are raised, that he plays better. It's not just a phenomenon when he goes up against higher ranked players. It's also a phenomenon when he's in finals. He is now 5-0 and in ATP finals. And if you go to the challenger level, he's won eight out of his last nine championship matches. Big match on Bear. Tactically, in this final against Dimitrov, uh, what stood out to me was Bear's backhand cross court winning against Dimitrov's forehand. So we have a lefty-righty battle, which means the cross court is going to go forehand and backhand, backhand and forehand. And in this case, on the deuce side, that's where I think Umber was winning. Now, it's not to say that on the ad side, Umber wasn't winning because, in fact, he probably was. But this is the one that Dimitrov knows he needs to win because it's Grigor's strength in his forehand against the lefty backhand of Umber. Grigor needs to win this cross court, and I don't think it was happening for him because Umber was winning the battle of, of heights. And in trading, when they were in neutral positions, they were trading in this cross court. It was usually Umber who was finding the first ball that was weaker, the first ball that was attackable out of that neutral situation. Because his backhand cross court on this indoor hard court, low bouncing hard court, it is very flat. The net clearance is often very little, so it stays super low. He finds good angle on it. He hits it with a lot of pace. And what I was seeing from Dimitrov was a lot of these 
on the run kind of lifted a buggy whip forehands where he's having to again lift the ball and hit with more height and more spin and unless that ball is landing on the baseline it's just sitting up into Umber's strike zone to be crushed and Umber loves that higher contact point over the level of the net because he is so good at finding that leverage on the flat ball and uh, and almost hitting down on the ball with his backhand. And he can take that early on the rise as well. And it's a very deadly shot that I can highlight here a couple of times. Um, a couple of times here where it's Umber actually using the backhand slice. Now, I saw it a lot of the time uh, with Umber using his drive backhand cross court, which stays super low, just like a slice would. But in this case, um, I want to key in on some of the bigger points in this match. So here's a, a big one at 4-5, Deuce Dimitrov serving in the first set. Uh, Grigor right now is going to try to pattern change into the Deuce side with his backhand slice down the line. Umber, backhand slice cross court. And this one has a lot of depth, but it also stays low. And this is this lifted, buggy whip, high, heavy forehand from Dimitrov that just isn't going to work in these conditions against this opponent. Umber is going to take it on, on the rise, about shoulder level, cranks this cross-court angled winner. Beautiful shot. And then a little bit later on, we're going to see the same pattern. This is in the, uh, the, the very next game with Umber serving. This is... Love all. Game point to win the opening game of the second set. Backhand slice down the line from Dimitrov. He wants that lifted ball, right? So Dimitrov's trying to do the same thing with his backhand slice. He's trying to draw the weak ball. But Umber has the proper response. He's just going to slice it back. So again, slice cross court from Umber. Stays low. Below the level of the knee of Dimitrov. This is all about height. Now Grigor lifts. And off of the lifted forehand from Dimitrov, Umber attacks with the backhand cross court to force the air. Not even close. Um, really beaten with pace there was Dimitrov. This pattern, there is no forehand down the line threat from Dimitrov because the ball was staying so low off of the cross-court backhand of Umber. And he was hitting a lot of forehands cross-court that were just getting attacked. There were also some huge points where Dimitrov played the cross-court forehand and made errors on it. Some massive points. Neutral situations. And uh, I think that also highlights that there was a sense of a high level of pressure when Dimitrov was hitting his forehand cross-court because Umber was attacking off of it so well. Uh, deuce 4-5, another one of these deuce points in 4-5 in, in, in the first set where Dimitrov hit a really, really easy forehand, just, just regulation forehand cross-court that he missed just long. And then break point to go up to love in the second, regulation forehand cross-court from Dimitrov, hit it just long. He was feeling pressure in this cross court on the deuce side. And when he's losing that cross court, he's in trouble because he does not have the backhand down the line 
to profit off of the ad side cross court consistently. Look at Dimitrov trying to execute the same exact pattern on the other side. So Dimitrov, he tries to slice it low, and this is break point in the second set at love one. This is gonna be the this is gonna be a massive point. Umber's gonna go up the break here. Uh Dimitrov tries the same thing. Low to Umber's forehand. Make Umber hit up on the forehand on this low bouncing hard court. And now attack the next ball. The problem is Dimitrov, unlike Umber, he doesn't have the backhand to do it. So this is the same thing on the ad side. And it's Dimitrov trying to attack with his backhand behind the low ball. And he can't do it. Middle of the net. This backhand down the line goes into the middle of the net. Dimitrov doesn't have the backhand that Umber has in this situation. Umber's serve was also decidedly more deadly than Dimitrov's. There was a stretch in the third set where Umber won nine straight service points on eight unreturned serves. Aces for the match, 10-6 Umber. Percentage, first serve percentage, very similar at the end of the match. But for Umber, it was a steady 69% where it felt like there, there wasn't really any point in the match where his first serve started misfiring in bunches. Where Dimitrov, he finished at 67%. It's a pretty good percentage. But there were two games in a row, two service games in a row, where he missed a whole lot. And there was one service game, start of the second set, where he got broken, that love one game, where I don't think he even made a first serve over, the, over a stretch of, I think, seven points. So there's a big difference there. Ultimately, I thought the match started off and they were both playing a really high level. These are conditions that reward offense. Both players were serving extremely well. They were clinical in attack. They were holding easily. And I was thinking, oh my God, pros at this level, they're just, they're just so good. Like there's so many points right now being won off of beautiful serve execution, just highest level of offense, uh, not a lot of errors, just perfect execution all around. But the level dip came at 4-5 from Dimitrov. And I don't know if it was nerves because it was 4-5 and there was some scoreboard pressure and it is a final. I don't know. I don't know if it was fatigue because Grigor did play a three-hour semifinal against Karen Hatchinoff. I don't know which one it was, but you could see something change in this 4-5 game in the first set. And it was pretty bad from Grigor. Dimitrov was up 40-30. And he made five unforced errors on the next nine points. Three on the forehand, one on the backhand, one double fault. There was only one point. So, Umber in that nine points. He won six of them when it was all said and done. So five unforced errors from Dimitrov. There's one point that Umber won on his own terms. It was a point that I actually already showed you via screenshots. It was the uh, Umber backhand slice that was deep that Dimitrov had to hit the, the high topspin forehand cross court that Umber stepped in and hit the backhand uh, winner 
off of. Kind of met it early on the rise. Not that early, but on the rise and just ripped that backhand cross-court winner off of Dimitrov's cross-court forehand. Um, so that was that. But by the way, earlier in that point, Dimitrov had three to five, you know, maybe, I think probably four is actually what the number is. He had about four forehands to attack earlier in that rally. And he, I can't say he wasn't offensive on him. He was, but they just weren't good enough. They didn't create enough damage to really break open the point and give Dimitrov the advantage that he probably should have had in that rally. And then Umber would ultimately come up with that really great play to win. Next point was break point. And Dimitrov missed a very, very easy plus one forehand into the net. That was the first set. Then in the second set, Umber hit two great shots. One of them was that body serve uh, by Dimitrov in which Umber backed all the way up and ended up coming up with that forehand passing shot cross-court, which was the first point that I showed you in this analysis. So one of them was that. The other one was a, a beautiful backhand winner from Umber on the first point of this game. And from there, Dimitrov tried to pull the trigger pretty early with a forehand down the line, which he missed very badly. And again, it's, it's that same deuce-side cross-court pattern that Dimitrov just couldn't profit off of. And in this case... It was the same thing, pattern change with the backhand slice down the line. But then instead of Dimitrov hitting that loopy forehand cross court that Umber kept attacking, Dimitrov tried to go down the line right away. It just wasn't really there. And he missed it badly. And then the game point, the break point, was this one that I showed you. Backhand in the middle of the net from Dimitrov. So that's how things went down. Again, dominant serving down the stretch for Umber in this second set. He comes away with the victory and uh, a really great one. Back-to-back -back on indoor hard courts in France because he ended last year by winning the title in Mets. He is champion in Marseille as well. Let's go on to Dallas. Another one of the big title droughts snapped. We talked about this after Brisbane when you know Dimitrov finally got in the winner's circle and it had been way too long. And I went out and I said, what are some of the big title droughts now that don't make a lot of sense because the player is way too good to have not won a title in such a long period of time? Tommy Paul was the, the number one answer there. That was the one that come up, came up. It was Stockholm 2021. That was Tommy Paul's first title, and that was his only title until this week where he wins the second of his career in Dallas. Marcos Giron was his opponent in the final. I'll talk about Giron a little bit more later on. Uh, but Paul mostly won the first set that went to a tiebreak with his defense. Giron was in offensive positions time and time again, and he just couldn't finish in this tiebreak. There were a few unforced errors, didn't quite have the timing right. He was out in front of the ball early. There was also a spectacular pass by Tommy Paul a point that Tommy had just zero business winning. And I tweeted about this point. And whenever we talk about 
a player in, in Tommy Paul, you know, winning from defensive positions, his movement is the first part of that discussion. He is such a special mover. And the thing that stands out to me oftentimes is when when a player makes a great get, so often anticipation is a big part of it. You know, you have a player selling out into one corner and their opponent happens to go into that corner and okay, wow, now I have gotten to the ball that really I shouldn't have gotten to, but because I cheated, not that it's against the rules, but because I cheated into one spot and I that that cheating happened to pay off, now I have a great get. That's what like 90% of great gets are. It's cheating. It's anticipation. What's so amazing when I'm watching Tommy Paul is oftentimes he's not cheating. And he is still coming up with these digs in the corners that are not to be believed. And this tiebreak pass, if you can go back or if you remember it, I encourage you to watch the movement on this because uh, he, instead of, so basically Giron hits this awesome inside out forehand. Then he hits another awesome inside out forehand and he gets the short ball and he steps into the middle of the court. He's like just beyond the service line. He's taking time away and he hits a good forehand cross court into the open court. But Tommy, instead of hitting this, uh, instead of hitting his backhand, defending out of the backhand corner, and then just turning his hips and sprinting into the open court. He's actually taking a crossover step, split-stepping. Did he recover all the way to the middle? No, impossible. But he's split-stepping, reacting to Giron's ball, making a break for the open court at that point after Giron hits the ball, and somehow hitting a forehand flick Passing shot down the line, winner. What is so remarkable about this as I was watching it is I was thinking, not only is that insane that Tommy got to that ball, but had Giron decided to go to the other corner, had Giron decided to go behind Tommy, Tommy would have been there. It's mind-blowing stuff. He's somehow in the most disadvantageous position. He had both corners covered as Giron stepped into a mid-court approach shot forehand. Usually, if you're in Giron's position there and you hit a quality forehand, you've won the point and Tommy's movement just takes that away from you. So, uh, defense stood out in this first set. Really high-quality first set. Fun to watch. Physical. A lot of long rallies. Uh, second set, the passivity did get Tommy into trouble. Giron's forehand was awesome, and it was by far the best ground stroke on the court. He was killing it, and Paul was making it pretty easy for him to find chances to take big cuts on that forehand. On the ad side, Paul wasn't being forceful or creative, never really taking his backhand down the line. And Giron's cross-court backhand, it was usually a lot braver, so he was finding better pace, better depth, better angle, and generating the forehands through the cross-court backhands, which is always kind of the battle, right? Tommy and Giron, even though Tommy, you don't see him as a forehand player, it, it is kind of 
still the the finishing weapon from the baseline. When when they're in that cross court backhand pattern, it's really a battle to see who's going to get an opportunity to hit a forehand for the most part. And uh, that was just Giron time and time again in the second set, and he was cashing in on those big forehands. So sometimes Paul can get overpowered or out hit from the baseline, and this was just one of these times where Giron's forehand was large and in charge. Tommy did make the adjustment in the third set. And I think the first thing that he did to kind of set the tone was he got forward. He said, we're going to come forward, either serve and volley or serve plus one approach. And immediately, he really just took away Giron's ability to, to get into Tommy's first couple of service games because it was successful serve and volley, successful serve plus approach, a lot of big first serves. Big boy, first strike tennis from Paul. Giron doesn't really have the ability to do that so much. If you look at the net approach numbers, uh, they do tell a story here. In the first set, Paul was 10 of 15 on 80 total points. He was at net 19% of total points. That's kind of where I think he, he should be at most of the time. In the second set, he got away from that. He was 5 of 5 on 75 points. So he was only at net... Six and a half percent of the total points in the second set. It's way too low, in my opinion. It kind of speaks to how he did just hang back and was was pretty passive and not very inventive in the second set. Wasn't trying to do much. Um, in the third set, it wasn't as high as the first set. It was four of six on just fifty total points. So the net rate was twelve percent for Paul, but uh, still twice as much as the second set. At net twice as often. Four of six points one. Paul also mixed in a few more backhands down the line. He looked to raise the, the ground stroke speeds to just push Giron back, to take some time away, to not allow his forehand all day to, to be the offensive weapon that it can be, which is crucial. And also Tommy in the third set, he served 81%. Giron threw in a pretty sloppy service game at Love One. Got broken early in the third set. That was all she wrote. So, uh, feel-good week for Tommy. Useful timing because the, the Melbourne loss to Misha Ketsmanovic, where he lost the first set 6-love, I believe he had a match point in the fourth set. As painful as it gets, really. So, I'm sure uh, this, this will go a long way in wiping that pain away. And uh, I don't know what it means for, for the trajectory. I still don't know how faithful I am that Tommy Paul is going to be able to, you know, I guess take the next step and go from being a top 20 player to, to a top 10 player. But I do think that they have successfully identified what it's going to take. And um, it just seems like he's trying to up the ground stroke speeds. And he recognized that. He recognizes that for all the places where he's done great work and he's kind of closed the gap and all the things he does at a pretty elite level in terms of the movement and the athleticism and the fact that he can play an all-court game and he can attack through the midcourt, great transition game and finish at net. Still, at the end of the day, sometimes you're going to be stuck on the baseline and you're going to need to bring more muscle off the ground 
if you're going to compete with the very best. So you're just going to have to hit a little bit bigger, uh, take their time away, find more opportunities uh, to be offensive yourself because the defense and the movement for as good as it is, it's going to be uh, a it's going to be confounding for a lot of players on tour, but not the top players. They're going to they're going to be able to find a way to uh, get through it. So, can he hit bigger without being erratic? Can he do it outdoors? Can he do it against top players? Those are the questions for Tommy Paul. But this was a really big week uh, for Marcos Giron. I really enjoyed watching him. He is a terrific athlete. He is an explosive mover with really good power. I uh, I love how proactive he is in terms of how he goes about winning his first serve points. He is a spot server. He places it out wide. He attacks the plus one. He can really bomb the forehand. But uh, what I guess I want to just highlight is how good he's been against top 20 players over the last uh, stretch. So you take six, his last six matches against top 20 players, and you have four wins. And by the way, all four wins are dominant. None of them were close matches. He beat Kaspar Ruud in Tokyo and Felix Oje Aliassime in Tokyo. Both times, straight sets, decisive. He beat Tiafo in Dallas and Manorino in Dallas. That was his quarterfinal and his semifinal. Neither match was close. Not at all. And then his two losses now to top 20 players. Ben Shelton in Tokyo. Shelton was playing really, really well. And that was 6-4 in the third. Tommy Paul here in Dallas, this was 6-3 in the third. So not only is he 4-2 and two in his last six matches against top 20 players, but if you look at the score lines, it gets even more impressive. Lastly, on Luciano Darderi, 21-year-old Italian, I believe, of Argentine uh, heritage. He wins his first ATP title, coming through the third-ever final between qualifiers since the ATP launched in 1990, taking out Facundo Bagnus, the 34-year-old Argentine veteran, the uh, clay court challenger maestro Facundo Bagnus. For Darderi, just his third tour-level main draw, he came into the week just one ATP win to his name. He won a challenger title in Lima, Peru earlier this year, but he was coming off of a second round challenger loss when he came into the Cordoba qualifiers. And he wins it. One of the more out-of-nowhere titles. It is not the strongest field in the world. There's no doubt about it. But for what the field was, you can't say that Darderi got a whole lot of draw luck. You just can't say it. It's disingenuous. He played the four seed, in Sebastian Offner, he played the seventh seed, Yana Kaufman, a guy who can be really dangerous. He played the two seed, Sebastian Baez, who I thought was going to win this title. Who time and time again, in the last two years, has seemingly come through and won these kinds of titles at these kinds of tournaments. So, it's a great collection of wins for Luciano Darderi. In terms of his game, look, limited viewing. 
if I'm being honest. And uh, I'm always careful when it comes to that. I can make a lot of statements, but at the end of the day, I don't want to be wrong. And uh, so I'm always careful when I'm judging players off of uh, limited viewing. And certainly this is an example of that, but it seems like consistency is his best asset. Uh, he does hit his forehand with a ton of topspin. He is not blazingly fast, but he defends well. There were not any major offensive weapons that stood out to me in my viewing. But you can get pretty far um, even if you don't have those things. And he's just 21. Rankings jump 136 to 76 for Luciano Dardari. So we will be seeing a lot more from him in the weeks to come. That'll do it for this episode of Monday Match Analysis. Hope you enjoy. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.